0: I'm Ben Weingarten.
1: I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Eno Stepman.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well in today's episode, as per usual, we'll cover the waterfront. I will open us up by talking about the takeaways from what I would argue is a self-indicting Durham report. Inez will talk about the charges against Daniel Penny coming out of New York. Emily will talk a bit about the new rights rail bill fight. And last but not least, Josh will give us a recap of NatCon UK, as well as what's going on with respect to 2024. So with that, I will turn it over to myself. Uh, And with respect to this Durham report, in some ways, it's nothing. And in some ways, it's everything. In terms of the long-running theme of this podcast of the hyper-politicization and weaponization of the national security and law enforcement apparatus which of course is hugely corrupting for our republic the height of election interference in running through 2016 and now up until this point with these very agencies and when i want to say it's everything and nothing on the one hand the Durham report illustrates just with vastly richer detail, much of already what we already knew about the fact that the notion of Trump Russia collusion, this treasonous conspiracy, was a fraud from the start, justified on the basis of the thinnest reads imaginable. And we could go through chapter and verse, kind of the myriad elements of this, starting with bar talk with George Papadopoulos and extending to the treatment of Carter Page as some kind of treasonous uh, Russian conspirator and the like. And the report shows, I think, in in very good detail, uh, some of the the gory details around the various ways in which essentially the FBI and DOJ broke laws, rules, and norms to create the appearance of Trump-Russia collusion and justify an effort to delegitimize, destabilize, and ultimately try to destroy a president, again, interfere in elections, and invalidate effectively the votes of tens of millions. Of Americans, and I think kind of the the key takeaway line. You know, we could talk about the double standard that the report shows with respect to the FBI and DOJ's treatment of Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton with respect to so-called foreign interference. Uh, we could talk about specific instances of the egregious ways that again agents did not follow their own rules and norms. The fact that they covered their eyes and ears completely to any and all exculpatory evidence. They refused to interview many of the people they were surveilling and spying on and who were the basis of their case when those interviews would have dismissed the case summarily right from the start. And I think the key line from Durham here is that he shows, he argues that there's there was no evidence of Russian collusion from the start, either in the DOJ and FBI or from the intelligence community when they opened a full counterintelligence investigation. And beyond that, the DOJ and FBI, quote, failed to uphold their mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with the outrages that he details. However, to layer outrage upon outrage, all John Durham has to show is three false statements cases and a handful of criminal referrals. Now, how would he justify that? One argument would be, and this is sort of the language reading between the lines in the report, shows, and maybe he was chastened by the fact that this was the result, In two of those three cases that he brought was that you were not going to win convictions of government officials in front of D.C. judges and juries or Virginia judges and juries. And he found that out himself in seeming slam dunk, dunk cases, only one of which he won. And that one, of course, was against a government official who doctored an email to lie about Carter Page's background and suppress information, which, by the way, the FBI knew about Carter Page from the start that he had actually worked with the CIA as a source for five years from 2008 to 2013. And this lawyer doctored an email to suppress that information, keep it from the court, which of course would have been exculpatory for Page and potentially exculpatory for all of Trump-Russia collusion. Staying out of the weeds, though, for a second, there's another argument to be made, which is that even if John Durham might have been able to garner convictions of government agents and he lays out their mass conspiracy here, criminal conspiracy, even though he doesn't call it as such, Durham seems to be a company man here protecting the institution, something that we feared the entire time. And there's evidence of that in the fact that he continues to raise in this report the idea that the FBI could have been manipulated and should have considered that it was manipulated as if the FBI was a victim here, as opposed to the key agency weaponizing against the political opposition in the face of Donald Trump and his myriad supporters. Now, there's other evidence beyond the non-prosecutions that we ought to look to here and beyond this line about that the FBI might have been manipulated or should have considered it. And I'll quickly run through. He never subpoenaed, to our knowledge, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Christopher Steele, Fusion GPS's Gwen Simpson, many others, and last but not least, Barack Obama. And Barack Obama is the forgotten man in this, yet all of these machinations happened under him. His administration was well aware of the fact that dating back to either June or July of 2016, that Hillary Clinton was likely going to use this idea of Trump-Russia collusion as a cudgel to attack Trump. Beyond that, the German special counsel, it seems, never investigated the DNC hack, which was critical to the narrative of Russian interference, which then glommed onto Trump-Russia collusion, as well as what the heck the Mueller special counsel was doing with tens of millions of our dollars and years wasted knowing that this was a fraud from the start and easily knowing that it was a fraud from the start based on Durham's investigation. There are many other leads he did not pursue as well around the mysterious Stefan Halper, for example, and the targeting of Michael Flynn and a slew of other issues as well. And I think what all of this points to, and last but not least, Durham himself does not call for any radical changes to the FBI or DOJ whatsoever. He has a line about the fact that they need to return to the rules of old, essentially. And I think that's a total cop-out. If you do not punish those who are involved in foisting upon us one of the greatest scandals in American history, there is no deterrent to such behavior going forward. So we've seen that congressional Republicans are calling for John Durham now to testify before them. Maybe they'll be able to elicit some answers from him on some of these burning questions that his report raises. Beyond that, a Jim Jordan, among others, has talked about the fact that maybe the FBI's, the funding for FBI's band-aid about. A new headquarters, massive new headquarters that they're seeking uh, ought to be frozen. Obviously, that would seem like a good start in terms of remedying and punishing what the FBI has done in this report. But it goes well beyond the FBI. There's a massive scandal of national proportions. It implicates our media. It implicates the FISA court as well. And all the other actors who were in on promoting the Trump-Russia collusion narrative. And I think at the end of the day, the most sobering thing is that we get no justice. We have had no justice. We're talking about this on the verge of the 2024 election really opening up here. So we're talking eight years later, uh, and that's a huge outrage. And gone uncorrected, as I've argued again and again, it's just going to guarantee infinitely worse scandals to come. So with that, I'd open up to the group for kind of your takes on some of these points, uh, if you if you see it differently than I do, and what the remedies ought to be.
2: Well, I mean, Ben, you should feel vindicated. Let me first just say that as some as one of your – Numerous editors over the past few years, uh, for your various, your, your whole series of, of opinion columns and reports on this topic, you should feel extremely vindicated. Uh, I, as should everyone else who called the spade a spade and said that this was a hoax, uh, you know, Roger Kimball calls it the Russia collusion delusion, um, from, from day one, call whatever you want to call it. But, uh, you know, I mean, for those of us who have been following this for years, nothing particularly new in the Durham report, right? I mean, it's not like we learned any kind of new information, the most sobering thing, Ben, is exactly what you said at the end there, which is where where is the justice? I mean, this is the greatest information operation. Uh, I don't know what, what how else to call it. I mean, it's the greatest information operation hoisted onto the american people probably in the history of the republic and it is just deeply deeply sobering to contemplate the fact that there might be no actual retribution for it i mean is anyone going to serve time in bars i mean kevin Kleinsmith got off with just probation and he was a fairly small fish to fry and all of this to begin with i mean has hillary clinton said a damn word about this i mean I mean, I mean, this all starts with Hillary Clinton, lest we, lest we forget. I mean, none of this would have happened if the if the entire operation hadn't been laundered through the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. I mean, then then ultimately gone through Perkins Coie, Fusion GPS, Christopher Steele. We all know the actors' names by now. I, I'm I, if Hillary has said a word, I have missed it. I I mean, so the, I mean. I, 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 As far as remedies go, I, I mean, it has to be impeachment, right? I'm kind of just putting on my constitutional law hat for a second here. I mean, it's defunding and impeachment. Those are basically the two tools. That the House can do and, and the House should be doing right now, but there's, not, there's there's unfortunately not a heck of a lot else that you can do if you control the House and no other body, whether it's in Congress or the White House. So defunding, impeachment, a subpoena power, a subpoena whoever the heck you want to use, and I guess just try to make an issue for 2024, but deeply deeply sobering stuff, obviously.
1: And yeah, this stuff um, is intentionally complicated. Oh, I'll just be super quick, and so that the public doesn't care about it, right? Because it's it, it's impossible to follow all of these like different shell groups, like how how Clinton went through Perkins Coie and Mark Elias, and then you get to Klein Smith, and it's just impossible to create a really strong narrative for the public to see unless they you dig into it. When you dig into a Durham Report, for instance, is absolutely damning. The amount of time and hysteria that was spent on Russia Gate can never be countered by the corrections that are not. coming um, to the extent that you have like a Washington Post series. Okay, great. Big takeaway from the Durham report from my perspective is also just how Denchenko was not vetted when they uh, started paying him as a a confidential human source, because that means essentially it's there's a probability that the FBI was uh, and and Hillary Clinton were actually spreading Russian disinformation, that they were fighting the specter of Russian disinformation with actual real Russian disinformation that completely disrupted our election and a four year presidency and made it difficult for the duly elected president to govern. So job well done team.
3: Yeah, I mean, to the extent that Hillary Clinton has said anything about, she didn't say something, anything about this directly. She did say, if Donald Trump got elected again, it would be the end of democracy. So, um, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the word from Hillary. Yeah, I mean, to to bring this um, again, a, a note on sort of the the president at the time, right, Barack Obama. Um, this this is bigger than Watergate. Um, And one of the frustrating things about the media narrative around Obama has been that he has the, quote, scandal-free presidency, and then they like say something about the tan suit that he wore, and that's the biggest scandal. No, this is a a bigger scandal than Watergate, and it happened during the Obama administration. Um, And that's worth, I think, for the right pointing out, if only to try to broaden the Overton window, because I still think the... The average American, is, as as uh, Emily said, is this is this is very um, it's hard to connect all the dots. It's complicated stuff like most people don't have time for this, but they do have this general sense of Obama as uh, sort of a scandal free presidency. And I think it's important to uh, point out that that's not the case um, in terms of what Ben and, and Josh have said about the remedies here. Yes, um, the remedies here are political. And I think it's important to frame the any remedies in in two ways. Um, one is that it has to be structural. I think there are. In, I think this report shows the the massive limits of non structural reform. Right. Yeah. Um, it is ultimately very difficult to get convictions, not only because of the D.C. courts. Um, but but also because a lot of what's happening here, uh, is is arguing against a judgment call. Right. You should have interviewed this person. You should have considered the possibility that this was complete garbage because you know like so it's it's very difficult to actually nail people down on on a case like that um on criminal charges as opposed to and this is my second point that the remedies have to be political the remedies can't be to retreat from the political and say like the FBI needs to be you know, uh, neutral you know, and, and return into these, like, I guess the end of this report, right? Saying that we need to go back to the old rules of the FBI. You know, the reality is that the FBI, like every government agency, is political. Um, and therefore there ought to be political control over it, whether that's from Congress through impeachment and and funding or defunding, or, or whether that's directly the president. Um, so any any remedies that we seek, I think on this have to be, they cannot be aimed at one particular person, like I, I, I guess I see, I see those as very fundamentally limited. Like, you know, yes, we can drag out uh, Peter Strzok in his underwear and and <laughs> and, and uh, with his arms behind his back and and perp walk him, but that won't solve the problem. Even if we were able to do that, um, it won't solve the problem within the FBI because the problem is more about, um, it's more pervasive, it's more bureaucratic, and it is more structural. Uh, so, I, I think it's it's important that the remedies have to be political.
0: With and we'll that, go I guess right I, back to you
3: and as. Yeah, um, I'll transition to this. Um, another case here in New York, of course, um, just some updates on uh, the, the Penny case and Jordan Neely case in, in New York City. Um, so Penny has been charged with manslaughter, um, notably not murder the way that I mean, at least the prosecutors in New York are not yet stupid enough as stupid as like MSNBC and uh, the front page of The New York Times uh, to, to try to. Charge him with murder, but they have charged him with with manslaughter. Um, I think it's notable here that Bragg is the one who's bringing the charges. DA Bragg is the one that's bringing the charges after impaneling a grand jury. Um, I know we say on here a lot, right? That there's the whole ham sandwich thing. Like, a, you know, a, a, you can get an indictment on a ham sandwich from a grand jury. That's um, because only the prosecutor's side gets to present their case, and at the end, the prosecutor decides. You know. Um, he can he can just dissolve uh, the the grand jury and that's kind of what happened here. He decided to move forward with direct charges. I think that's actually really notable. I think it's very likely they couldn't have gotten an indictment from a grand jury on this. Um, I'm actually quite optimistic and whitepilled about this case in New York. Um, there is this widespread sentiment um, as as there was perhaps not as strong as uh, during the Bernie Goetz case in 1984, but it's really difficult to get a, a jury in New York that has not felt threatened on a subway car by somebody who is out of his mind and violent. Um, and this this is a sort of issue that does tend to cut through politics. So I'm actually quite optimistic. Um, I, I think that it'll be very difficult to convict. Um, Penny gave an interview with the New York Post uh, in which he said he would do the same thing again because he felt threatened and, and understood everybody else in that car to be threatened uh, by Jordan Neely. Uh, one One further update. We have had the the family of Jordan Neely come forward and and ask for uh, higher charges and so on. Uh, I, I just on a personal note, I, I find it incredibly uh, galling and uh, difficult to watch because if if anyone had, you know, a- actually failed Jordan Neely, of course, the city of New York and all the things that I, I said before about the system, you know, making it so that he was on that subway car at all after 42 arrests, some of them violent. Like he never should have been, he should be alive and in jail or in a commitment, involuntary commitment, right? It's very obvious he never should have been there and Daniel Penny should not have had to defend himself in that situation. And that's a failure of the system. But even before the system failed, right? Who failed first um, is is his family. And the fact that his family is out there lecturing the rest of us about how they allowed this to happen to their Their family member and allowed him to be a danger to himself and others, um, I just find very personally galling, I guess. But with that, I'll I'll, I'll turn it over to the rest of you.
2: Well, I mean, there's been a lot of talk here about the system failing, and we did a whole segment on the Jordan Neely, Daniel Penny, um, terrible story a couple of weeks ago. Um, Given that we're talking a lot about the system failing, given that we're talking here about New York City, given that we're talking here about jurisdictions where in some parts 80 to 90 percent of the voters in these jurisdictions voted for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, I I see no particular reason to be optimistic that this trial will come out the right way. Um, I, I, I remember disagreeing actually with Alan Dershowitz on this as well. When it came to the Alvin Bragg prosecution of Trump, which I think Dershowitz and I both think is is, is total garbage as far as kind of the legal substance of it. Um, and Alan basically said that he would be acquitted. And my response to that is, you know, Alan, you still have faith in the system. I don't. It, it, that, it's really just that simple. Um, I mean, like if, fundamentally, like you either trust the system, you trust the process or you don't. And like, Inez, if you still trust the system at this point, you're the one living there in New York City. That's fine. Um, I don't trust the pro- I don't trust the system. I do not trust anything whatsoever about these big blue cities anymore. And I'm grateful as hell that I don't personally live in one of them. In fact, I'm not going to elaborate. But I have a friend who's flying to San Francisco to- down the- today, the day that we're recording it, for a very cool meeting. Just a quick, quick little overnight trip. And, you know, he was he was texting me that he is literally arranging his trip such that he does not walk on a sidewalk because he is that terrified of being in San Francisco right now that he is literally going there. He's going to have his Uber pick him up like at the exit. He will be exposed in the sidewalk for like 10 seconds. And like that's like the whole trip (laughs) that's like hotel airport. So I I just have no faith whatsoever um, in these big blue city hell holes right now. Um, it, it is. It is. Obvi- it would obviously be a total travesty of justice if Daniel Penny were. Um, actually convicted for for anything. I, I do nothing think legally that he did anything wrong for all the reasons that we discussed a couple weeks ago on this show. and I would encourage the good patrons of this program to contribute to his various funds for raising for his criminal defense. But um, I, I certainly am not optimistic. I mean, if it gets appealed, you know, the the state level appellate, appellate courts in New York are slightly better than the trial courts overall. So hopefully he would be vindicated on appeal. but I can't say I'm optimistic about the actual trial.
1: The the trial is such an interesting thing because we've already tried this case in the court of public opinion um, and with with mixed results, of course, but something I've been thinking about over the last few days with this example, with the so-called City Bike Karen example, is how profoundly unnatural and hypernovel it is that you have people around the world dipping into this group of people's lives, strangers lives for, you know, 30 seconds, a minute and 30 seconds, whatever it is, and and jumping to all sorts of conclusions that they publish publicly and that have consequences and implications for this person's, these people's really very real existences, their their reputations, um, their their work, their jobs, and their their lives, as is the case with Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny, who, again, is being tried for murder. So it's, it's incredibly, um, I think, disturbing how the court of public opinion, which is inherently based on social media, unjust. Um, influences than the actual court of law. Right. Um, without the court of public opinion, would Daniel Penny be dealing with this without the court of public opinion? The woman with the city bike would be dealing with basically nothing. She never would have been suspended from her job. She never would have gotten uh, literally thousands of messages um, and smears on her reputation uh, from people who don't know her. So we're we're just not meant to interact with each other this way. And uh, the, the more instances uh, instances of this that we see, the more just Profoundly depressing it is, but also uh, it becomes profoundly clear that this is wrong, and that we need to, uh, as individuals, sort of be mindful of our impulses and our use of tools that um, are intentionally designed to uh, foment outrage and anger um, and virality, vir- viral anger and outrage. Um, and we also need, you know, these these corporations and uh, regulatory authorities to start thinking about that too.
0: I just go to the 30,000 foot perspective, maybe covered before in my absence, which is that effectively the progressive, quote unquote, criminal justice agenda is a pro crime agenda. It's a pro chaos agenda. It's a pro injustice agenda at the end of the day. And obviously, this case has a chilling effect on anyone who would dare be a good Samaritan in horrible circumstances in a New York subway or anywhere else. Uh, in an urban environment out on the street. But beyond that, it is just a recipe for lawlessness and violence. And you have to to question, is that the point at the end of the day? Is the point to destroy the rule of law, law and order, and make it so that there's a presumption of guilt, essentially, on the innocent and a presumption of innocence on the guilty, who are, of course, only guilty because it's society's fault. And, And this is just the natural logical end of the progressive agenda. It's also worth noting, I think there's some guidance out there that the DOJ is considering or may have even uh, started to implement saying that they shouldn't basically police on statistics that they receive, which deal with race. So essentially, what you're saying is cover your eyes and ears to the reality on the ground, because we don't want to offend people. And we'd rather people get hurt and die, particularly in communities that are overwhelmingly of a certain race or of another race because we don't want to offend people. And this is asinine, and it should be called out as such. Americans as individuals should be secure in liberty and justice, and that requires meeting it out according to where the actual problems are. Uh, But instead, we are now suffering under a regime which is going to guarantee that our streets are far more dangerous, uncivil, and chaotic for years to come. And with that, I'll turn it back to Emily to talk about a completely different topic, uh, this rail bill.
1: Yeah, no, the the rail bill is about much more than rail. Of course, it passed out of committee in the Senate um, earlier this month and with two Republican votes, by the way, J.D. Vance and Eric Schmidt of Missouri. It was a bill championed by J.D. Vance. Uh, I believe Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley were co-sponsors of the legislation as well, Um you know this is a this is a very very interesting debate on the right. In fact, Oren Cass uh, over with our friends at American Compass and uh, Phil Bell of Freedom Works actually debated it at length. I think they did an hour long debate on the American Compass Critics Corner podcast, which is a really fascinating listen that I would recommend. Um, not just if you're interested in rail issues, but if you're interested in where the uh, sort of conservative movement is going and should go, because it, uh, the the question of this. Piece of legislation essentially boils down to whether um there's actually very very fundamental dispute um the the kind of libertarian impulse to trust corporations because of their business incentives and then the uh, new conservative rethinking of that impulse which is corporations um actually can't be trusted with uh with those incentive structure with that incentive structure because the market doesn't actually have that incentive structure in many different cases. So you see this in the way that, um, you know, you talk about things like, private equity, uh, talk about healthcare. We talk about, um, social media. How can you have a, a market incentive when certain companies are monopolistic? That's obviously always been historically a problem with, uh, the rail question, but, um, you know, Oren over at American Compass had a great thread, um, basically just talking about how at the end of the day, you know, people agree that there needs to be uh, there need to be in, in an industry like rail, there needs to be regulation, right? Nobody, nobody disagrees with that. And, you know, if we take drugs, for instance, you have maybe a slice of the professional libertarian crowd that believes we should Legalize heroin, for instance, and can mount a substantive defense of that position. But uh, the vast majority of Americans and indeed the vast majority of conservatives believe that you need some regulation. Again, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Our population was always, or our constitution was uh, only built for a moral populace to quote the founders in a couple of different ways stating the very, very obvious. Uh, We are humans, we are fallen, we uh, are in need of some government uh because the free market has its limits of course and that's especially true when you start looking at common carriers um, that are necessarily monopolies um you see that in rail you see that with social media uh, as clarence thomas has explained and the like so if we uh, come to it from that perspective and we say well listen These companies are actually not acting in the interest of uh, safety because there's no market incentive um, to act in the interest of safety. This is a bill that was drafted in the wake of the East Palestine disaster, Um, and you know it it doesn't. It's it's not a perfect reaction to the East Palestine disaster. And yes, it would uh, benefit big labor in ways that I think are are irritating. Uh, But uh, to to that extent, well, not I shouldn't say irritating, but in ways that um, you know, big labor is obviously crony and woke. Um, and, you know, that's sure. But the problem is really that they're not serving their own workers that might be served well by the bill. So, I'm just going to toss it open uh, to the group. There was some friction. Um, some Republicans did not end up voting for this bill, um even though I think you know their objections were somewhat reasonable. But at the end of the day, you have an industry here that um, you know is already being regulated. And having better regulations is a perfectly conservative position on that. Um, So you can debate whether those regulations are better, but uh, acting as though there should be less regulation of the industry when we have a a safety record that's uh, pretty poor compared with other countries. Per the industry's own calculations um, is a tough place to be. So I'll toss it open to the group. What do you think about this fight? look i'm I'm no expert on rail regulation.
3: um, but what I have read is something similar to what Emily has been saying, right? We have apparently our rail system has something like twice as many serious accidents and derailments as um, most European train systems. um and and there always does seem to be, <laughs> you know, America is generally a uh, more free market than most European countries. But the regulations that we do choose to have uh, are, often unfathomably stupid um and it, it, there seems like a there, there seems like a bit of a, a sort of dichotomy where if you have this kind of big government welfare um welfare state, sort of uh, highly regulated bureaucratic society, as many European countries do, um, it becomes a position of uh, some, you know, money and, and honors uh, to, to be in those things. So you to be regu- a regulator, a bureaucrat, so you end up having like sort of a higher caliber of person dealing with some of these regulations where, I mean, it's just undeniable I mean, if you've taken rail anywhere in America versus even in the Northeast where it is quite um, like an important, you know, sort of... Um, mode of transportation where it actually makes sense and the country is dense enough to support that kind of system um there's usually no comparison between even like small european countries have far far better cleaner more efficient faster rail with fewer accidents um and so the idea that that uh we should be reflexively anti-regulatory um about this i mean um or in cast the thread that emily is referencing i mean he puts forward some things that again sound quite reasonable, right um, you should have two people on board any train um, to deal with any problems right um, some like putting trains with hazardous materials and classifying them in some particular way that has additional regulations that, you know these these sound pretty reasonable to me um especially when you're dealing with a essentially uh, a monopolistic system as Emily said I mean, rail is inherently. There's there's usually one track and the the um, incentive to build a second track is the the barrier to entry is very very high so you have a kind of natural monopoly in rail um, so yeah I mean I, I think it's again um, I think we we will see these these things come up again and again the difference between sort of this reflexive position and the position that sits down and says okay well we have a mess of regulations how can we make this more you know more clear uh, better. By the way, I have just the, the personal connection. I mean, I know Amtrak is separate from the the um, cargo rail system, but, uh, you know, my husband was on amtrak and and uh, it lit on fire, like a whole car lit on fire. They had to evacuate the station. Um, and the only thing that uh, Amtrak, you know, put out publicly about that was, oh, there was a uh, fire department activity that delayed the train. They didn't say that the train itself had mm-hmm. caught on fire. and they had to evacuate first the car, then the train, then the entire station, right? So I, I, it really seems like, uh, allowing a lot of um, that's of course a public public subsidized rail right so uh, this system seems right for an overhaul is all I guess I'll say on that.
2: Wow, well that's pretty terrifying about Amtrak. Um, I, U.S. Rail is horrible, right? I mean, like the one exception I think then to U.S. Rail. Um, bit of a shameless kind of promotion of sorts is for Brightline, which is an exceptionally awesome uh, private train based here in Florida. That's currently the only South Florida. They're expanding it to Orlando later this year, but it's, it's all privately funded actually. It, 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 is, it really has no government involvement whatsoever. But in gen- generally speaking, U.S. rail is just awful. And some of the stats from that Oren Cass tweet thread really just bear that out. I, I mean, I didn't know the extent to which derailments were that much more pervasive in the United States relative to to Europe until that, I, I mean, I, I think I had heard somewhere that they were that they were more frequent, but not that much more frequent. And you know, look, I mean, th- this issue is interesting. I'm really happy we're talking about it. Not so much because I'm like I'm a dissertation PhD in, in railways or anything like that, but because it does just kind of underscore this broader debate on political economy that has been kind of uh, percolating throughout the ride in, in recent years and is only going to continue to percolate over over the next few years. So, we, I mean, we ran a great piece of Newsweek back in March that we'll flag for the listeners and viewers here is from Chris Griswold, who works for Warren American Communist, and the title of his piece was Railway Safety Act Presents a GOP Choice, Tired Dogma or the common good. And on that same theme, you know, J.D. Vance, who's kind of the leading sponsor of this bill because of East Palestine, Ohio, all that, he had a piece in the Daily Signal, which is, of course, the Heritage Foundation's in-house publication. I thought it was a good piece. And he actually, it's very clever what J.D. did in this piece. He quotes a, a Heritage Foundation report that they put out from Alexander uh, Alexander Salter, an economist there. And the quote from Salter that J.D. Vance quotes in this Daily Signal piece is, quote, the question is not whether to jettison free enterprise in favor of the common good, but how to orient free enterprise in support of the common good. And I really like that. I really, really like that that framing, right? We're talking here about prudent, common sense guardrails to maximize the efficiency of markets and try to harmonize the market's internal efficiency-maximizing dogmas with this general notion of the health of the polity. So I'm kind of just going in abstractions here, but I want Ben to get a word in.
0: Yeah, I concur in remarks, and I think that quote is an inspired one. I would just say, again, looking at this from a kind of 30,000-foot level, we spend so much on so many asinine things and have every single aspect of our lives hyper-regulated by the administrative state. And yet when it comes to very basic things like ensuring public safety in actual infrastructure as opposed to our cognitive infrastructure, and that'll lead me to something I'll mention in our closing thoughts about how the government actually wants to regulate our thoughts as a matter of public safety, but we don't have public safety on our trains. It just strikes me that it's just further proof of the rolling classes total failure on a practical level that Americans ought to see in their everyday lives. And so this is a perfect instance of these are on prudential grounds, legal grounds, political grounds, a perfectly justifiable piece of legislation. And we have to live in the world as it is, not as we might wish it to be. Um, With that, I will go to Josh now to talk a little about 2024. Okay, so
2: this is a big week for the 2024 uh, presidential race. We had Tim Scott announce his presidential campaign on Monday. And while we are recording this in the middle of the day on Wednesday, by the time that you listen to this podcast, Ron DeSantis will have announced his 2024 candidacy, long anticipated. I think he is widely expected to be the leading challenger to former President Trump within the Republican presidential field based on polling, money, endorsements, basically every metric that you can possibly come up with there. So I just wanted to kind of just have like an open-ended conversation about the things that, that NatCons should be hoping for, should be on guard for, should be, um, you know, just generally kind of looking out for as this thing probably very quickly kicks into hyperdrive. So you know, political political economy, I think, is a good place to start. That's what we were just talking about with the Railway Safety Act there. So, you know, one thing that I am definitely looking out for is, you know, how much will the rise of the woke corporation actually affect the conversation on the debate stage and on the campaign trail? So, you know, you've seen some candidates um, or 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 soon to be probable candidates like Mike Pence, um, Nikki Haley, who have taken some shots at Ron DeSantis for his ongoing um spat versus the Walt Disney company. You know, that is that is about one example. You know, we we we've discussed Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney and all that on this show. You know, it is I think it is worth pointing out um that during that, uh D- Donald Trump Jr. at least kind of told conservatives to basically kind of you know call off, you know, the shots have been leveled here. Maybe you shouldn't um Take this through to its logical fruition. So how much is that going to actually affect the debate conversation? Because, you know, this is the first real Republican presidential primary that we've had, of course, since 2015, 2016. And a lot has changed. I mean, the rise of the woke corporation ha- ha- is a fairly recent-ish phenomenon. Um, you know, certainly I think it was it was a factor back then in 2015, 2016, but it, it really has you know, I, I think seismically affected the conversation, of course, you know, that also has, um, you know, pertinence for the antitrust conversation when it comes to big tech and other industries as well. So I think I, I am very, very curious to see, you know, who takes a more kind of NatCon, more nationalist or populist approach to to those issues, who is going to stick to kind of the, the zombie Reaganite or BoomerCon dogma, whatever you might want to call it there. Um, you know, foreign policy, I think is going to be a a, a a huge topic here, right? I mean, uh, you know Donald Trump, whatever his, you know whatever your quibbles with him may or may or may not be. Um, I have long said that I think Trump's foreign policy was the single best part about his entire presidency. Um, his judicial picks were obviously quite good for the most part as well, but I thought his foreign policy was gen- was gen- genuinely excellent in, in virtually every way. And you know, it'd be interesting to see who wants to campaign on kind of this. Um, You know, uh, the Trump doctrine of foreign policy. Michael Anton had that essay for Foreign Policy magazine back in 2019, basically kind of a Jacksonian foreign policy. Um, you know, Jonathan Swan in The New York Times had this long essay on Ron Sanders' own foreign policy a few months ago. The term Jacksonian comes up time and time again. So who basically kind of, you know, I mean, to use kind of the overwrought phrase, who you know, knows what time it is, right? When it comes to kind of, you know, the um, the sprawling excesses uh, of kind of the post Cold War American Empire, and who, uh, uh, who by contrast, I think kind of takes kind of a perverse kind of uh, a ah, historical view of zombie Reaganism and wants to kind of spread American liberal democracy to the furthest trenches of the globe, right? So that's a very kind of, um, you know, oversimplified dichotomy, but it's definitely the kind of thing that I will be looking out for as well there, um, and you know, and then just just generally speaking um you know i'm kind of that same late motif of of kind of knowing what time it is you know who really understands the depths of our current cultural struggle i mean who actually is in touch with what republican primary voters feel enough to actually understand that they genuinely earnestly truly feel like their lives their culture, their lives, their churches, their synagogues, their their general way of existence is under assault each and every day. Seriously, each and every day. I mean, where, whether it comes goes to Target partnering with literal Satanists for children's clothes, whether it goes to the L.A. Los Angeles Dodgers, one of the most famed baseball franchises in Major League Baseball history, promoting a, a genuinely anti-Catholic, a horrific bigoted group to try to appease the L.G.B.T. lobby. I mean, who is in touch with enough to to understand? the magnitude of the culture war, and who actually understands that we, yes, we actually have to have a theory of the prudential use of political power to try to vanquish these horrific forces of wokeness wherever it rises or wherever it raises its ugly head. So, um, you know, those are kind of the broad themes that I'll be looking for. You you know, we're obviously not like endorsing candidates or anything, but um, I I, I defer to you guys uh, on your thoughts on that.
3: Sure. Uh, Maybe I'll jump in first here. I think I broadly agree with the the buckets that you've been sketching out. Um, I think the understanding that the culture war is not a distraction, um, is is critical and actually sort of the the fat part of the middle of the Venn diagram and actually a large part of the Republican Party's appeal to independence, Um, contrary to the way that I think a lot of um Beltway consultants believe that uh, you know, we appeal to independence based on economics. I I strongly believe we appeal to independence um, on culture war issues. Um, so that I agree with those broad buckets of, of culture war um, sort of how you deal with corporations, which is part of the, the culture war, but also has a large economic component and then foreign policy. Um, it's, it's been really disheartening actually to, to watch um, regardless of sort of which candidate people support and there are reasons to support. I mean, I want to say both of them because I don't think there's really a any any shot that it's going to be anyone but Trump or DeSantis. Um, but it's regardless of of uh, what candidate you support, it's been really disheartening uh, to me this discussion over the the Disney jobs, right? Um, it's like we reverted back to 2012, uh, and with with the way that a lot of the right, um, whether that was you know on Fox News or whether that's some of the other candidates. Um, is talking about this question with Disney as though, uh, you know, this is just about bringing jobs to Florida. Like anybody who thinks like that is not going to be able to do what's necessary and fight the the battles that are necessary structurally um, in, in the way that our regime is constituted. And with just following up on that point um, briefly, before I, I kick it out to uh, Emily and Ben, uh, I what I'm looking for is a right that will think about things institutionally and think about what it it's, is needed in each one of these institutions, whether it's a parallel institution, whether it's it's um, kicking the legs out from under an institution that is now, uh, you know, completely captured by the left, um, whether it's how to to move public money, in and out of these institutions. I think this particular solutions may be different in each one of these fields, but overall, I'm looking for somebody who seems to understand the institutional power of the left and be interested in hitting back institutionally. Um, and then just finally, one last brief point. We are talking about what we're looking for in, you know, from the nat- NatCon perspective, or whatever, we're talking about policy. I don't know if that's actually the fault line and the way that Republican voters will be thinking about it, they may not be thinking about policy. They may be thinking about policy versus trust, right? That that um, that that essential trust with somebody who is not part of a system that they rightly view as rigged, um, that trust may well end up being more important than any particular policy promises. But since we're policy wonks here, um, I, I agree with Josh's broad buckets.
1: You know, I was... Uh... Contemplating Tim Scott's candidacy last week, in, in as the Durham report was sort of being digested, and thinking, What is, what is Tim Scott's? Does Tim Scott have any um, impulse to do what needs to be done um, to the intelligence community, to corporate America? Uh, because his his messaging is. Truly, it, it is optimistic, and it is positive, and it's inspiring. His personal story is inspiring. He has shown enormous courage. I can't imagine how frustrating it has to be uh, to be a Black conservative and put up with the absolute Idiocy that white liberals spew every single day um, about you, about your beliefs. You are constantly subject to smears, and I uh, think he's he's shown a lot of character. But as a presidential candidate, um, you know it's it's really really hard for me to think of anybody who's sort of post Trump but not. Post Trump, in the sense that has not been sort of awakened to all of the various dangers of the intelligence community, of uh, corporate excesses, um, to to just sort of go out there and campaign on this this positive messaging with no, uh, as Inez said, I think very well earlier in the show, structural reforms um, on the table. I think someone like Ron DeSantis probably is interested in proposing structural re- reforms. He's doing his conversation tonight as we tape this. He's prepping to talk to Elon Musk and, and David Sachs. Um, I think that's an indication of sort of where he is uh, temperamentally and uh, sort of ideologically on those questions. Um, I'm sure Donald Trump uh, will have some type of idea about what to do about uh, corporate excesses and the so-called deep state, but. If you don't, at this point, you're out of touch with the viewer, out of touch with the voters and completely out of touch um, with the the moment. Um, you're, you're completely out of touch with, if you believe in conservatism, but you don't believe in those structural reforms, your ideology makes absolutely no sense.
0: Yeah, and I think one thing that's heartening is the, the polling reflects that the voters, the actual base, often betrayed by purported representatives is oriented towards the NatCon populist conservative perspective of the world, infinitely more uh, than, again, most of the representatives. I would just raise two non-philosophical points that I think are of utmost importance when it comes to how we think about 2024. One is any candidate who believes they ought to be president has to be able to answer the question, how do you intend to win under this electoral system, this voting system that has evolved since the you know pandemic emergency driven measures putatively of 2020. If you don't have a substantial response to that, and if you're not able to articulate clearly how you practically are intend to win under that system, even before you get into the interference of the national security and law enforcement apparatus. Obviously, the propagandistic media, whatever social media will do to moderate content going into 2024, uh, that's a major, massive, fundamental problem. And second, any candidate who wants to be president has to be able to articulate, to the extent they have any ambitions in their agenda, how they intend to actually execute that agenda, both in terms of personnel and their policy, given that the federal bureaucracy itself will be at their throat from... Days before they're ever inaugurated, and working every single day to sabotage and subvert that agenda. So, to me, the the, the key two key, key questions are to the presumptive Republican nominee: How do you? How are you going to win under this system? And then, if elected, how are you actually going to effectuate your policy, given all the structural disadvantages that we talk about every week? Um, and with that, I'm happy to open it up to uh, some parting shots.
1: That wasn't a, that might be a record long silence. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll continue a little bit on that last point because I, I bet that's what all of our closing thoughts are going to be on. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, that's my prediction because it's the big sort of question of the moment with DeSantis's announcement looming um, with, you know, the, the Daily Wire. Here's another thing to add. They said they're taking all of their shows to Twitter starting on May 30th. Um, this is becoming a sea change with Tucker Carlson's move to Twitter as well. With the uh, shot that it looked like his team sent across the bow of Fox News via the Daily Signal this week about some um, you know woke uh, corporate handbook stuff that's uh, on the the books over at uh, News Corp, and you know that's uh, at Fox News that's interesting. Um, but it does feel like with Elon taking over, Elon Musk taking over Twitter with Newsmax suddenly getting a bunch of new uh, viewers. And I'm sure that'll be spread out across other places as well. Something's, something's going on right now and the Republican primary sort of coinciding with that cultural moment is super, super interesting. The Surgeon General this week put out an advisory on social media saying they could not conclude that it was safe for children. That's Biden's Surgeon General, of course, but um, you know, the, there are some, some big things that are starting to happen, not happening quickly enough, uh, I would say, but uh, the Republican primary coinciding with them, I think means that we should see reactions that are indicative, um, of what people think makes a winning campaign. And, uh, we'll, we'll see which one actually sort of stands the test. Um, but that's, I think that's that this is a Republican primary and not really a Democratic primary. Uh, Biden might be forced to, to wrestle a little bit with Maren um, Williamson and RFK Jr., um, but that this is a Republican primary, I think is actually really helpful because Republicans are the only ones right now. Like Matt Taibbi, as we were taping this, just posted a letter that Jim Jordan got, um, th- that, that Jim Jordan, I think, sent to the IRS about why Taibbi got a visit from the IRS like around Christmas, right after he was breaking news on the Twitter files. Uh, you know, this stuff that Republicans are the ones that are championing Matt Taibbi in his battle against the IRS is significant. This is a this is a really big deal. Uh, Democrats don't have any serious answers to a lot of these problems. And Republicans, even if they're starting to have answers for the wrong reason, uh, are at least coming to the table. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a very, very productive uh, primary for the country, not just for Republican voters.
0: So I'll jump in uh, really briefly. I want to return to, since Emily invoked Igor Denchenko before, I can't help but go down this rabbit hole for a second. Uh, Danchenko was the key, quote-unquote, subsource of Christopher Steele on the Steele dossier, which, as everyone knows, is one of the linchpins of Russiagate. The dossier was used to eviscerate the rights of Carter Page uh, via the fraud foisted on the FISA court. Just to understand, this FBI that's been weaponized against the American people Igor Denchenko was under a counterintelligence investigation from the FBI due to his contacts with Russian officials. And apparently he was going to try to peddle information potentially and sell it to the Russians and work to try to get other people to work with him on that project. The FBI thought he left the country and ended their investigation. But in fact, he did not. They botched it. This was the key source of the Steele dossier that the FBI relied upon. And then the FBI rewarded him further by making him a confidential informant. And in return for that, he got hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. So we paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for this person who is on their radar as a counterintelligence threat. Uh, And he, of course, was rewarded for it. Uh, Beyond Denchenko, and obviously there are myriad outrages, I've done a, a massive mega thread on Twitter on this that I hope you'll check out. It goes into all the gory details and passages within the Durham report. Beyond that, it is worth noting also, since Josh invoked Hillary Clinton, Hillary actually was apparently interviewed by the special counsel. Now, we have not seen that transcript, uh, but I hope that Congress will go about obtaining it and then releasing it to the American people, because we ought to know what did Durham ask and what did Hillary know, what what didn't Durham ask and what didn't Hillary address uh, in connection with this so-called investigation. Uh, beyond that, just a uh, heads up, um, I was thrilled and honored to have testified on Capitol Hill a couple weeks ago about a topic that we discuss almost every single week here, uh, which is the silencing of ourselves directly and by proxy of the federal government. Uh, in particular, I appeared before a House Homeland Security subcommittee on oversight investigations and accountability chaired by Dan Bishop, and I commend Chairman Bishop for holding that hearing, got to speak alongside Jonathan Turley, uh, Martin Kohlendorf, one of the Great Barrington Declaration authors, and one other minority um, witness as well, and lay out kind of the myriad ways in which DHS, and particularly its sub-agency, SISA, has gone about silencing us and violating our First Amendment rights directly and by proxy. It's an issue that the Republican House appears to be on their radar. It's actually even made it into an appropriations bill under the Homeland Security uh, auspices as well so keep an eye out on that it, it's also something by the way that the weaponization subcommittee is apparently looking at as they've subpoenaed the director of SISA, jenny Easterly. please you know, check out my testimony I, I i did a very substantial prepared piece of testimony for that committee which i've broken down in an easier easy to read sub stack over at my sub stack at winegarden.substack.com so shameless plug there but i think you'll enjoy it
2: yeah and then you just as i i, I wanted to just emphasize, again, how much I think credit you deserve for being kind of, I think, one of the foremost people in the right of center commentary, talking headspace, who has really been beating the drum of Russiagate, um, Bob Mueller, uh, John Durham, all of this really just for years and years now. So you should feel really good about yourself. Um, I, I honestly don't really have like a strong parting shot this week. That's kind of why I was complicit in, in, in that thoroughly awkward pause when we, when, when we, when we turned the conversation to <laughs> parting shots. Um, I I, I guess I'll just say, like, I am both, like, very excited for and simultaneously also very dreading um, the Republican presidential primary. Um, It it already has gotten pretty ugly, and it it probably is only going to get uglier. Um, And like all three of you and probably like many others listening and watching this program, I, I have people that I consider personal friends who are on um, both sides of the Trump-DeSantis divide. Um, I, I don't do a particularly um, uh, you know, good job of trying to hide wh- who my preference is in that fight. I'm obviously, I, personally, I, I am rooting for Ron DeSantis in his presidential campaign. I, I don't hide that at all. I'm fairly explicit about that. But I, I, I just want to kind of appeal to um, the listeners and the viewers of this program here, no matter which of those two sides you are on, you know, r- remember that I mean, not to sound sappy, but like like we, we we for the most part really are on the same team here. Right. We for the most part, we really are, um, you know, ultimately trying to, um, you know, defeat uh, whoever the Democratic nominee and it will presumably be Joe Biden is. And, you know, at least in theory, we are all trying to do the same thing, which is save this wonderful experiment in order to liberty from the. Uh, from from the irredeemable forces uh, of wokeness that, uh, you know, cast a pall over it on a seemingly daily basis, threatening to undermine, and ultimately destroy it on any given day, ending in Y. So, you know, just kind of a, you know, a somewhat trite, but nonetheless uh, simultaneously heartfelt appeal uh, to both people on on the uh, on both people within the two camps in the Trump DeSantis world, because it's going to get even uglier. And like again, like it already has gotten pretty ugly, especially if you're as online as I am, and I presume the three of you are. But um, you know, let's let's just try to let's try to not lose any friendships or anything over this as well.
3: Um, yeah, I should have gone before Josh so that he could wrap it with that heartwarming thought. Um. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm glad also that Ben has plugged his own testimony because that was going to be my final thought. I was going to uh save him from the self-aggrandizing moment and say that I really, really highly recommend listening to Ben's testimony and second everything Josh said about his reporting on this issue over the years. I think it's been invaluable and and now has been proven. We, we already knew it was proven right uh, a while ago, but now has sort of gotten that definitive approval. Um. I, I did have some some sort of unrelated and perhaps uh, less fun things to wrap up on, but um, one, I, I want to highlight again uh, something that Ben said uh, briefly as an aside, but this um, policing dictate, um, I think it takes the form of a dear colleague letter, uh, but this is something definitely to keep an eye on going forward. This is essentially saying that it's a civil rights violation um, to <laughs> to send police where crime happens. Ah, uh, because there's a disparate impact uh, racially. And that is an incredibly radical, um incredibly radical concept that will destroy policing even further than it already has suffered in the last in the last few years and really in the last seven or eight years since Ferguson, right? So, um, I think that's that's important to to keep an eye on. um, and then finally, to to I guess close on the the my reasons for being slightly white pilled on on the Neely trial. um it's it's not because I trust, quote unquote, the system. um it's it's the, in this case, it comes down to a jury. um and we've had some of these debates before, but I, I still think outside of of um even someplace like d c perhaps, um which is very small. but uh, I, I think largely the jury system, um the average American, even in a blue city like New York, um, has uh, is more reasonable than uh the, the quote unquote system often is, and and just from the personal perspective, I mean maybe I'm I'm just uh wildly and and uh optimistic without any basis, but um the protests here did not catch on the way that the Floyd protested. They were very obviously uh sort of stilted and and staged and and done only by a handful of activists. Um, the, the sort of scuttlebutt on the street and my coffee shops on the subway, I think there are simply too many people who have had exactly the experience, um, perhaps not quite as directly threatening, but something close to it on the subways. And this is something that cuts, cuts through politics oftentimes, um, and produced a 20 point swing in New York for Republicans. I think almost exclusively on, on this crime issue. I think it is something that people, uh, get fed up with, even if they're not on our team with regard to anything else, um. So I've been encouraged by the the lack of outcry against uh, Jordan Neely in New York City, even though it's leading, you know, the headlines in the Times, et cetera. Um, I was on uh, Andrew Cuomo's program uh, a couple weeks ago, and even his callers, right, even people on the left in New York, um, are were pretty universally in favor. Of, of Neely, so I think we might be looking at something more like a Bernie Get situation where people are just very fed up. So that that's that's my reasoning for uh, for being optimistic. Perhaps I will be proven wrong. I, I hope not for uh, this this young man's sake. So on that, um, I'll, I'll give it back to to Ben to wrap us up.
0: Well, first all, I should say I'm just humbled by the uh, kind comments and very appreciative, and obviously the feelings are mutual here. So we'll wrap on a on a warm note today. Uh, On behalf of Josh, Emily, and Inez, this is NatCon Squad. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you on the next episode.